And so what I want to do today is I want to look at that question, why do Christians call God Father by taking a brief look at the human story? Because fatherhood plays a really big role in the stories we tell. But there's a phrase or an idea that I want to say first, and it's going to guide us throughout this entire uh, sermon. And it's this idea that fatherhood in the human story is a story of conflict. In one of his letters, the apostle Paul to the first church, uh, to one of the first churches that he uh, had planted, the church of Ephesus, he acknowledges this conflict. And speaking to both parents and children, he writes these words. He says, children, obey your parents And later he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Paul notes the conflict between children and parents is one where children find it difficult to trust and parents find it difficult to lead. Now, depending on where you are in the conflict, whether you're a parent or a child, passages like these become more of personal proof texts than anything else. Children argue that parents, they need to stop provoking in order for us to be more obedient. Parents argue children need to be more obedient, so I don't provoke you. And it's this constant war. And I think the reason why is because Paul makes no effort to recognize who initiates this conflict, but only that it has to be dealt with. And by responding to both groups, the question of who's responsible, children or parents, is like asking the question, what came first, the chicken or the egg? It's a never-ending argument. It goes back and forth. And like most arguments, What matters most isn't reconciliation, isn't that two groups come to a a resolution. It's rather who's right and who's wrong. Now, I don't think Paul makes this statement. I don't think Paul talks to children and parents this way because he wants to assign guilt. I don't think he's concerned with finding a guilty party. I believe he wrote this as a call to examine the conflict that exists between fathers and their children, a conflict ingrained in the human story. Daddy issues are a reoccurring theme in the stories we tell. From Shakespeare's Hamlet to George Lucas's Star Wars, the conflict between parents and children is proven universally true. I found it interesting. I was reading a, a blog uh, this week about fathers and their sons. And the writer makes this claim. He says that because of this conflict, it seems that the greatest conflict in human history or human story is not good versus evil. It's really children versus their parents. At least it's the most relatable and recognizable conflict. Joseph Campbell, an American mythologist, he uh, did a lot of work on comparative mythology, something he called the monomyth. He looked at all of ancient mythology and stories and realized that despite different cultural backgrounds, despite different times, they all approached the same uh, story of the hero from a similar framework. And one of those aspects he noted was that fathers play a significant role in the human story. Fathers are always the ones who hold the key to the hero's identity. The the father is always the one that the hero has to kind of encounter. And Joseph Campbell calls this counter an interesting word. He calls it atonement. Now, atonement by definition means a reparation for a wrong or injury, and Christians, we're really familiar with this idea because we have a whole section of theology devoted to it. It's called the atonement or the doctrine of atonement. It has to do with Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross and how it uh, pays for our sins or pays our debt or reconciles a relationship between us and God. But Campbell doesn't use it that way. For Campbell, atonement with the Father 
is the point in the hero's journey where the hero recognizes that in order to accomplish his purpose, he must either submit to his father or defeat him. Atonement for Campbell is the moment where the hero realizes he only has two options in the story. He either gives in to his father, trusts that he's good, or he rejects his father, believing him to be bad. Atonement reveals the reason why children distrust their parents and why it's tough for parents to lead their children. Because the plans parents have for their children oftentimes differ than the ones children have for themselves. That's why rebellion is a big issue amongst young people. This uh, idea of self-asserting ourselves, of finding our identity, needing to kind of reject or uh, separate any kind of authority that seems to want to dictate that uh, identity for us. And like the question of who started the conflict, how we resolve this issue is more about who's right, or at least that's how we see it. We can either side with Fresh Prince and Jazzy Jeff and say, parents just don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> it's an option. Or like TV in the 60s, we could really sit down and say, you know what, fathers know what's best. A lot of stories favor both of these positions. There's no real set one which the hero has to follow. But what I found interesting is the trend here, at least in the West, specifically here in the United States, is that we favor the former. We favor the idea that parents do not understand. And it's not because of what parents think of us. It's not because children think they know more than their parents. How many have ever heard that? Parents say that to you? Think you know more than me, I know more than you? It's not because of that that we favor parents just don't understand or favor the idea that our parents, David's funny, favor the idea that our parents, you know, don't know what's best for us. It's not that we know more than them. It's because children know more about their parents. Specifically, we know their failures. I mentioned TV in the 60s because I think it's interesting to see the history of fathers on TV here in the in the United States. In the 50s and 60s, you had shows like Leave it a Beaver, which portrayed fathers as morally upstanding. Shows like Father Knows Best, which showed parents as dependable, fathers as men you could trust, men who always had the answer, the one you who will give us the right uh, guidance. But by the 80s and 90s, we ended up with Married with Children and Al Bundy. We have fathers who portrayed as aloof, undependable, unreliable, completely flawed. Interestingly enough, fathers become more comical if you look at TV now. There are more people to laugh at rather than to emulate. TV slowly but surely revealed what we always knew about our fathers, that our fathers are failures. And so that actually plays a huge role into how we see the story, specifically also for Christians. Because if our fathers are failures, then what does that say about God? One of my favorite movies in high school was uh, Fight Club. I don't know if anyone's seen it. Um, it blew my mind when I first watched that movie. If you've seen the movie, you know why. Twist is insane. Um, but what I found increasingly uh, alluring about that movie was that the power to communicate ideas. Before that, movies were entertaining. I just watched movies because they were fun stories. I had no idea that they could help me to think about issues that were most prevalent in my life. And there's a moment in Fight Club where Brad Pitt's character is talking to Edward Norton, and he says this one line that 
I could not get out of my mind. He said, our fathers are models for God. If they bailed, if our fathers bailed, what does that tell us about God? You see, Fight Clubs uh, was originally a book ran by Chuck Palahniuk, and he was actually a, a fan of Joseph Campbell's. He found it really interesting how fatherhood plays this role in a human story, and everyone has to kind of wrestle with their father and identity and overcoming them or submitting to them. And so he creates this story around an idea of what if men redefine the story? What if they reject the whole thing from the get-go? What if they refuse to acknowledge fathers as being the ones that hold their identity and see them for what they really are, incapable? And so I remember being uh, in college and showing this movie to all of my friends because uh, I just thought it was incredibly good. But deep in my heart, I had a conflict within me because I couldn't disagree with that statement. My fathers, or my father, for me personally, had failed me up until that point in my life. And it had left me wondering, if you watch the movie, you see Edward Norton, he wrestles with identity and who he is and the effects that you know, these relationships have on you, while Brad Pitt's character completely rejects it. He doesn't allow these things to affect him. Kind of uh, move on, redefine and write your own story. But what's interesting is they never really fully detach. If you've seen the movie, then you know that they end up starting this fight club, and they find a bunch of men that are, feel the same way they do, and I still don't get why beating each other up helps them to figure this out, but in the movie, they start this fight club, and these men all find kind of solace in this fight club, in pounding each other's faces. And <laughs> but what's interesting is that by starting this group, Edward Norton and, and Brad Pitt, and they're becoming father figures. These men have nowhere to go. They don't know what to do, and so here these two, these two characters come, defining rules, setting up what uh, masculinity is gonna look like, how they're gonna relate, how they're gonna be a community. They never really fully detach from the story. They, in reality, become something Joseph Campbell called the second father. That in the human story, despite us rejecting our fathers, despite wanting to overcome them or needing to overcome them, we're still longing for, for one to, to guide us, one to walk with us. A pastor in Portland named Cole Brown, he uh, did a lecture called Daddy Issues. It's on YouTube, I encourage you to look it up. Uh, if you want help finding the resource, I can definitely uh, guide you. And he wrote a small companion book for it because he noted in his ministry and in his life, Daddy Issues is, is prevalent in all human beings. Meaning at some point or another, our fathers as failures has affected us. I mean, I can remember being five years old and the one thing I wanted more than anything else was for my father to come on a school trip with me. You know, mother's always the one that ended up going and I just wanted my dad to come. And I remember my father was a superintendent so he was always on call, he had to be available and I, I think I remember begging him and finally he said, yeah, he would do it. That morning came, he went with me to school, he stayed the whole time, we're getting ready to go on the bus, and, and like a movie, I couldn't write it better, as soon as we were about to leave, his, his beeper goes off. It's the 90s. And so he asked to run inside, and he says, uh, he calls, you know, uh, it was our landlord, and a pipe had bust in our building, so apartment was flooded. He had to leave. Came back on the bus, he told me, and I remember him walking away, and I can't remember where we went on that trip. Can't remember. All I remember was feeling that my father couldn't be there for me. Now, it's not his fault. Work came in the way he has to provide. We lived based on his, his, uh, his provision. But moments like that in the human story 
tend to be prevalent in everyone. There's moments where our, our families or our father figures, our parents, can't give us what it is that we need. And we long for something more, for one who can. So Cole Brown, in this lecture of Daddy Issues, he makes this statement that uh, floored me when I first heard it. He said, the reason why daddy issues abound, or the why they're prevalent, is because we were meant to be fathered differently. That in the human story, children have this perception that there's something more to be had. We long for it, we hope for it, but as we all know, humans fail, we fall short. And so Cole Brown does a masterful job of showing how the biblical story, in fact, matches up with the human story. When you look at the Bible, you see men who, as Christians were trained, are heroes. You know, we see men like Abraham, his sons. We see uh, David. We see um, every manner of man. Every single individual is kind of painted as this hero. But when you look closely at the narrative, you start realizing that every single one of these heroes is flawed. Russell, in one of his sermons uh, weeks ago, recognized that if there is a hero in the, in the Bible, it's more of an anti-hero. And the anti-hero is someone who, it's, you're really hard-pressed to define whether they're good or bad, or whether they are justified in their actions or not. You can't really label them good because of the actions that they've committed. Me and my wife restarted uh, watching the Daredevil uh, series on Netflix. Daredevil is probably my favorite uh, superhero comic book character. And, so, um, and Daredevil is, I think, by far, probably the best one out of the four Marvel ones that they've made. Uh, we can talk about that later. Um, but uh, in season, well, in season one, Daredevil's biggest conflict amongst his friends is this idea that is what he's doing justified? Is what he's doing necessary? Me and my wife talk about it the other day. You know, he has these powers, he should use them. But how he uses them? And so by the end of season one, and like most times when we watch movies or stories or read books with heroes, we end up favoring the hero. We believe that they're righteous. But season two comes along, and if you've seen season two, spoiler alert, uh, the Punisher's involved. And he's this vigilante that could care less about a civilian casualty. He doesn't care about what happens or who gets in the way or what method he needs to get rid of the bad guy. And what's interesting enough is Daredevil's conflict with him. It's very hypocritical in a lot of ways that now Daredevil wants to be the one to tell him how justice should be, be given. And so the Bible does a similar thing for us. We read the narratives, we read these stories of these men, and, and Abraham's the father of the faith. He's looked at as, you know, being the one that in, uh, believed in God and it was accounted to him as righteousness, had faith in his promise. But there's moral failures that are present in Abraham's life. I had a professor in, in college, uh, in an Old Testament class, he made sure that we read the Bible, the, at least the Old Testament, he said with Hebrew eyes. He constantly emphasized, we couldn't even mention like a Christian idea or theme, he would act as if that never existed. We had to read it for what it was. And so we spent a significant amount of time, and one thing that he kept pressing to us, and it was hard for many of us in the room, growing up Christian, many of us who've heard these stories before, is he would harp on the moral failures of these men. And he would constantly press us with this idea that no hero, no human being is a hero in the Bible. That you can't really grab one person and say, that's the guy, because here comes a, a failure. And what we end up doing is something that uh, Russell noted, I believe, uh, in his sermon on Mother's Day. 
he noted that what we end up doing to the Bible is we end up making it a story about preserving our heroes. Making it about preserving their image rather than allowing the Bible to tell the story that it's really trying to tell. That there are no heroes. Though we can acknowledge and maybe uh, admire aspects of the human story, no human being is, effectually, is effectually heroic. And Cole Brown notes that when he says that daddy issues reveal a longing. When you read the narrative of the Bible, you're longing for something. When you first read about the fall and you hear that uh, God's speaking to Adam and Eve and he says that there's one who's coming, you're longing for that. When you meet Abraham and you hear the promise that, you know, his son, you're longing for that. When you hear about, you know, uh, Moses and uh, how he's going to deliver them and you're longing for that. When Moses said there's a prophet coming, you're longing for that. When God speaks to uh, his people and he says that there will be one who sits on the throne, you're longing for that. But incidentally, every single man you meet falls short. We keep trying to pinpoint and put, you know, uh, pick a hero and, and isolate their, uh, you know, their good qualities without acknowledging their failures. And so the Bible's portrayal of fathers is exactly like the human story. Fathers are failures. And it leaves us longing. But here comes the good news or the gospel. And it's very shocking at first when you read that. Again, if you approach the Bible from the, the eyes of, I guess, a, a Jewish person reading that story, when Jesus comes on the scene, what he says about God is very, very difficult to grasp. Because the narrative of the Old Testament, the narrative of these stories, is that God is in a plane of his own. That we here have to kind of meet him, his standard is there, but again, we've met no one to do that. But what's interesting enough is the Jewish people at the time of Jesus were still waiting for someone who would come and do it. They sincerely believed that there would be one person, an individual, a man who could meet that standard. And Jesus actually rejects that idea. But what he says about himself is interesting, is that Jesus calls himself the son, and he acknowledges God as father. J.I. Packard is a theologian, I think was one of the most prominent theologians of our time. Um, I think he officially, he's way into his 80s, I think close to his 90s, he's blind now. Um, I remember reading an article about him, and and a lot of his time was spent writing and speaking, so they asked him about how does he function now, if he can't do these things anymore as he used to, and his, he said that the, his inability to, I guess, partake and enjoy does not diminish the fact that joy is still most prevalent in his life. He's an interesting perspective, but his greatest, or one of his greatest books is called Knowing God. It's a bestseller, and I bought the book several years ago, and he devotes an entire chapter to this idea of being sons of God. And what he says about Christianity about how to describe it or how to define it is something that I want to read to you today. This is Packard. He says, you can sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way you sum up the whole New Testament religion, in the same way, uh, you t- yeah, you sum up the whole New Testament religion if you describe it as a knowledge of God as one's holy father. 
If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. This is not the, if this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship, and prayers, and whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity as well as he should. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and in a way better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the new name for God. When Jesus introduces God as father, he changes the relationship within the human story. You see, up until this point, the human story has been highly patriarchal. And it's always been that way. Russell made that point on Mother's Day. And I remember writing it down because I agree with it, but I never thought of the implications of what that means for the way that I read books or look at movies or interact with people, that the world is patriarchal. And the first thought that went through my mind, if I can be honest, was, Russell, why'd you do this to me? I have to preach on Father's Day. Like, because <laughs> I couldn't fathom how you could talk about God as Father without considering the patriarchy of the world. And that's exactly what makes this so difficult for the first century Jew when Jesus calls God his father. Because he equates a relationship with God that because of this patriarchal world is so highly valued. Fathers are so regarded, so respected, so admired simply because they're fathers. I mean, their moral, failure, their moral failures are completely, you know, kind of put to the side. They're not looked at. I mean, you see that in, in Jesus' ministry. Predominantly, you see it in the, the story of the adulterous woman. They bring the woman to him, but they don't bring the man. You know, there's constant uh, uh, reality. There's a constant reality you see in the New Testament where the world is patriarchal. It's always been that way. Even Joseph Campbell notes that all of the ancient mythologies were written from a male point of view. He couldn't find female heroes when he was writing his book, so he had to bring in fairy tales to do that. I find interesting the idea of bringing in fairy tales because if you know the modern fairy tale was birthed uh, in the 17th century from a debate between people who felt ancient stories were better than modern stories. And Charles Perrault, a French writer, wrote a book called uh, Tales of the Past with Morals. And he reintroduced or he took the stories of like Cinderella, Puss in Boots, Sleeping Beauty, and I think seven others. And he kind of reintroduced them, reimagined them into what we call the fairy tale today. But his biggest critique from the academy, from you know, uh, his contemporaries, was that he chose to tell stories where women and children were protagonists. Can you believe that? That's crazy. That their biggest gripe with him was not if the story was good or not. I mean, they thought it was foolish, but primarily because women are the, the heroes. That kind of issue still even exists today. I was reading an article about Wonder Woman and uh, before it came out and the, the consensus that people, that hero, female heroines, or heroines in the movie, female heroes are heroines, um, they don't tend to do well in stories and movies because the predominant audience is male. The only way that you can sell a female character to a, uh, to a movie or TV show is if the woman is focused on her beauty. If you only focus on that if you dress her a specific way. And so people were really concerned with how well Wonder Woman would do. Would this kill the franchise? Would it ruin the ability to tell other female uh, heroes stories? And what people found amazing is that Wonder Woman, between their first and second week, had the lowest drop of any superhero movie in the last 10 years. We're talking Avengers, we're talking Iron Man, we're talking Dark Knight. 
And what that means is between the first and second week of a movie, usually there's a significant drop because everybody's already seen the movie. Few people go back and watch it again. I've said plenty of times I want to go back and watch this movie, but I've never done it. But there's people that do. What's interesting about Wonder Woman is, and they're trying to figure this out, is did people not only go back to see this movie, but did they also bring other people to see it? Because they're, the numbers are kind of unreal. But the fact that we look at these movies, the fact that we look at these stories as if can they do well simply because the female character is a lead character kind of reveals the condition of our hearts. And so the world is patriarchal when Jesus enters the scene. And the world is patriarchal looking at stories of fathers as these uh, untouchable you know, or, or highly respected ideas. God is one not like us and we cannot be like him. But when God introduces this new name for father, he introduces it himself as the son. I was telling my wife as I was going over my sermon that I found it real interesting that rather than God show up and tell us he's the father, you know, like most stories, the person shows up, you know, Star Wars, Darth Vader says, I am your father. Rather than showing up and doing that, we get to know the father through the son. We get to know the father through watching his son and hearing about and seeing the relationship he has with his father. It's not through God asserting himself or coming down in power and all this stuff. It's through a son saying, me and my father are so in tune. We're one, we're loved. I thought about what if God intends to respond to the patriarchal world? What if God intends to respond to our human story of conflict with our fathers? by showing us a relationship, a paternal relationship, or a relationship between father and child where there is no conflict, where the son is not worried if the father loves him, he's not worried if he can trust him, and the son and the father is not, uh, does not provoke his child, but loves his child, accepts his child. When Jesus comes in the scene, the most offensive thing is that he asserts him and the father have this grand relationship and he invites others to have it as well. Again, J.I. Packard describes this new relationship with the Father, and this is how he says it. He says, in the New Testament we find that things have changed. God and religion are not less than they were. The Old Testament revelation of the holiness of God and its demand for humility in man is presupposed throughout. But something has been added. A new factor has come in. The New Testament believers deal with God as their father. Father is his name. Father is what they call him. Father has become his covenant name. For the covenant which binds him to the people now stands revealed as a family. Christians are his children, his sons and daughters. And the stress of the New Testament is not on the difficulty and danger of drawing near to the holy God, but on the boldness and confidence with which believers may approach him. A boldness that springs directly from faith in Christ and a knowledge from his, of his work. To those who are Christ, the holy God is a loving father. They belong to his family. They may approach him without fear and always be sure of his fatherly concern and care. This is the heart of the New Testament message. The reason J.I. Packard notes that God, in a sense, reveals himself as father or maybe shows us that he's always been the father is because there's a conflict within humanity that's longing for something only he can give. We've been disconnected 
from God. We've been disconnected from him, and therefore it's difficult for us to relate to him. And our father, in our conflict with our fathers, don't give us any reconciliation. But as Packard notes, there is no conflict in the New Testament message. There is no conflict between fathers and sons. Charles Spurgeon, uh, called the Prince of Preachers, said, if God is a father, then I know that I'm deeply loved. What makes relating to God as father so difficult is because we bring this presupposition of what our relationship with our fathers is like. We say, if I've had bad fathers, like Brad Pitt in Fight Club says, then God must not be as good. That if my father was absent, then God must be absent. If my father was abusive, then God must be abusive. We bring these presuppositions in. And what Jesus intends to do by revealing his relationship with God is show us that that's not our only option. That's what we call the false dichotomy. The idea that there are no other options. This is all I'm left with. When Jesus comes in, he brings in another option. And he shows us that there's a relationship that we've longed for, always longed for, and can only find in him. Why Christians call God Father then? And this is my humble answer. Because the longing we've always had, what we've always sought after in our parents, what we've sought after in heroes, what we've sought after in community, is only found in God. Is only found in the relationship with him. I noticed that when you read the Psalms, you see a lot of language of God as a provider, a redeemer, a lot of salvific language. But what I also noted was tied into that salvific language is always the metaphor, the analogy of God as a father. When I came to Christ, it was around the time that my family's life had broken up. My father's moral failures and my mother's moral failures just pretty much were overwhelming. And growing up Christian, I'd always heard this Christian narrative. And I remember 15 years old, being in my room in the dark and just sitting down and thinking, God, if you're real, then you must be better than this. And holding on to this faint idea that what if God is better? About a year or two later, I remember reading the Psalms. I was encouraged by a friend. And Psalm 2710 stood out to me. Because Psalm 2710 paints this picture of what I had longed for when I was 15. Psalm 2710 says this, if father and mother forsake me, or some versions say father and mother have forsaken me, the Lord will take me in. This idea that what I'm longing for, eventually nothing will provide, even the comfort, the acceptance, the love of a father. Only God can. After reading that, I wrote that down. I was 17 years old and I told myself, if ever I have children, that's what I'm gonna teach them. That's what I'm gonna tell them, that there is a greater parent. I love that the verse, the language of the verse is not if it happens, it's when it happens. That's the moment, the, the, the biblical narrative tells, that's the moment when God takes care of us. That's when God steps in. And so why we call God Father? because what we've longed for only he can provide. Jesus intends for us to know that there's a relationship that he has that we can have as well, when we're always loved or we're always accepted, where there is no conflict, where we need not worry, need not fear, need not concern if he's for us, but know that he's always with us and he'll always be there.
And so this morning, I just want to close by saying Jesus' prayer, the prayer he taught us, the prayer that the church has prayed for years. We know it as the Our Father, because I think in it holds the very longings of our heart. So would you pray with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and all the glory, forever and ever. Amen.